Welcome to the Self-Helpful Podcast. I'm Kevin Miller, and I partner with our biggest publishers and agencies to bring you the most up-to-date experts and personalities in personal growth, development, and improvement, so you can be in the know and growing into your fullest capacity. I'm Kevin Miller. In this episode, we're talking about how to make effective, lasting change in our lives, but with a special focus on eating and exercise Though in all areas of life where we seek to develop new habits and get new results, there is now new information that areas of diet and exercise specifically don't work like the others and are the areas we most fail because life happens. So this new information is brought to us by Dr. Michelle Seeger, who I have with us today. Michelle takes our cultural concept of habits to task, really. And we're going to talk about her groundbreaking decision-making framework and the science behind it to give hope to the millions of what she calls and labels herself as unhabiters who are frustrated with their failure to keep up all the good habits they intend to engage with. And we're going to discuss a behavior change solution designed for them. And I should say us, as you'll hear, we are just enamored with creating habits in our lives that will give us the success we want. But what you're about to find out is a normal framework. And, and again, perspective just is not working for a lot of us. And there's a solution. That's why I've got Michelle on the show. She's an award-winning National Institute of Health funded sustainable behavior change researcher at the University of Michigan and a lifestyle coach. And for nearly three decades, she's pioneered methods to create sustainable, healthy behavior change it's being used to boost patient health, employee well-being, even gym membership retention. And I'm pulling info and in this talk from her new book, The Joy Choice, How to Finally Achieve Lasting Changes in Eating and Exercise. But I'm going to say it goes far beyond that. You can find uh, Michelle, I write just the book, wherever you get books. And folks, if you find value from this self-helpful podcast, even this episode, subscribe so you don't miss another one. Uh, leave a review about this episode specifically, if you would, and take something you learn and pass it on to someone else. You can always find me at kevinmiller.co. Next up, Dr. Michelle Seeger. Well, Michelle, as we were chatting about just now, yeah, I, I love getting info like what you're bringing forth to us today with actual research and testimony to things that I've been kind of thinking and grappling with for so long, but I didn't have the data. You do. So uh, I'm honored that you're here. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I also saw in the book here, here, I'll hold it up for those who watch the video that we'll be talking about here that you've got Tom Rath, Dan Pink, Ethan Cross, and Rod, Ron Friedman all endorsing the book. They've all been on the show, some of them real recently. So you're in good company. Oh, wonderful. What an honor. You know, as I was reading and just kind of going through things again on this, I think what came to mind was Mike Tyson's famous quote, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. I feel like there's a great intro to the book right there because we all create these habits. We have our morning routine. Then we get up, we go out, we get punched in the mouth. And as you know, and we got the stats and you've got the data and we don't follow through on the things that we want to do. And that's why you're here. And I feel like it's a huge message that we're just missing in this phenomenon right now of habits. Thank you. You know, if we don't ground our thinking, our approach, the research in the realities of the real world and the unexpected, 
then as good of um, science that strategies might be backed by or not, um, they they will the strategies can just easily break apart as soon as they come upon something unexpected. So our strategies have to be grounded in how our daily lives really play out. Otherwise, they're they can't stand the test of time. You got me thinking about morning routines. Another thing, I mean, this industry of self-help and personal development, morning routines are huge. I'm a big fan. Um, I went through years of 5 a.m. religious. I am not in that timeline right now. I mean, I've got stuff with family and work and things I'm doing, even in my own physical pursuits and whatever. And sometimes I just need more recovery. I need more sleep um, and it's not worth getting up. And so I'm going to go a little bit later, but then that pushes things out. And I think a lot of people find that. So I'm, I'm saying I'm a fan of the morning routine, but to try to get everything that we want in our daily habits in there before life happens, again, I see that we're just failing. It's not, it's not sufficient. Well, it has to do with, you know, in a way, trying to optimize mm -hmm. everything sets us up to create ideals and all or nothing thinking. And that just leads to a sense of failure, which, as we know, leads to low motivation, low quality motivation. It's It puts us on a trajectory, a downward, unsustainable trajectory that not only impacts the choices we're trying to become consistent with, but it impacts how we feel about ourselves and our abilities to take care of ourselves. So it it really has um, important impli negative implications for our own sense of self. And that is interesting because it, it almost feels like, yeah, ignorance is bliss. Once we get all these ideas of how we can improve ourselves, these habits we can put in place, these routines that we can do, and then we don't do them. Then we just heaped on more guilt and we almost feel like, you know, I'd have been better off in my ignorance in the past. And I literally see people with that perspective and I get it. Yeah. So we have been taught to think about setting goals, even creating um, small steps. And those are really important things. But if we do it in a vacuum that doesn't appreciate our full set of needs, our full set, I want to say daily needs between our family needs, our work needs, our, you know, our daughtering or son needs, you know, at, at a certain age, we start to have this additional, and I'm living this myself, this additional, um, very meaningful and important work related to helping our parents, right? Whether it's the technology assistance they need because they didn't grow up in a world where, um, you know, computers and iPhones existed and they have, but they have to, you know, stay up on things because they have to live their lives in their medical appointments or whether it has to do with unexpected things that arises in our work, we all have this very full set of needs and our, our own self-care needs have to be contextualized and has to take those other needs into account. And so the question is, how do we do that, right? You know, um, it, one of the things that 
that um, I talk about that's really important is what I call the self-care hierarchy. And so as you were mentioning, you have this morning routine and right now you have this intense need for recovery. And we haven't been taught to think about what are our, what is the hierarchy of our self-care needs. So okay. if we're talking about changing our eating or trying to exercise more or even trying to fit meditation or prayer into our life and trying to get enough sleep, those are all really valuable um, things to do for our own self-care if that's what we want to do. But how do we then juggle them and fit them in? And it's really important that we think about what do we most need right now? And I call that our foundational self-care behavior. So right now, what you're saying is you need recovery time. And I align with you on that. I, you know, for me, sleep and recovery is my primary self-care need. And it pretty much that's that always is my pretty much always what I choose. However, during my current book launch, I haven't been able to get the same type of sleep just because we're in, I'm in this kind of acute time sensitive period. And that's the other, that's the other thing and the compromise that we have to think about now on our, in our regular daily life, whatever we choose to do, if we want to sustain it has got to be realistic and take our other needs into account. And we've got to very importantly learn how to improvise in the moment when our plans go awry. But we also have to give ourselves grace when we're in an acute period. So, you know, I'm not beating myself up because I'm not getting the same level of sleep that I need over these two months because that is one of my needs. I have to, so we have to learn how to reprioritize if the, you know, during acute periods without beating ourselves up. You talk about that perspective of the person walking out the daily habits every day, never a, a false step in their stride what, or whatnot. And they're very disciplined. And I've had that attributed to me at certain times of my life. Back when I was a pro cyclist, very structured, very disciplined. Yes. Um, then kids happened. And at some point I left, uh, left that venture, left that uh, vocation and things are very different now. They are not very structured. And when I look at people who really embody, and I, and I want to be sensitive here because yes. thank you for, I mean, I'm so stoked for those of you who had a very, a very structured life. I don't, I don't know if my discipline looks the same anymore. And I have some people who I follow who really tout their daily achievements. And it's awesome. Honestly, uh, two of the main people that I hear that from are both single guys and yeah. So not to dismiss anything, yes, there, but, but it's very, yes. very different. I do not have a structured life today. I know things will happen that I do not have planned. So now we're back into that. What you said that, what do I most need slash want now it's going to change. So how am I going to walk this out? Expecting not pessimistically, but expecting there's going to be an interruption at the least. And how is that different than any other area of our lives? So, yeah. you know, when you were a cyclist and you had performance goals, like let's let's be very clear that the goal we have and, you know, there's we can in this time we have together, we really do need to talk about 
the different types of goals people have for their eating and exercise, because some goals are absolutely failure bombs. And we, we can talk about that at some okay. point, but let's stay um, on this topic. You know, you had performance goals. And I often get asked this in, when I speak about this, people say, well, but if I, if I let myself you know, flex and not do what I plan to do, then I won't perform as well in these races I'm running in. And yeah, you're right. And if you're, if you have performance goals, whether you're a professional athlete or just a competitive athlete in life or in college, you do have these goals and yeah. So the goal, those types of performance goals necessitate a certain, um, Ability to stick with the plan. I was going to say devotion. Yeah. Devotion, devotion. And there's nothing wrong with that. So the, the thing that changes that, that a lot of athletes aren't prepared for. And the research also backs this up as well as my experiencing my experience coaching people over the last 30 years is I, and, and by the way, when I started um, my path working with real people outside of um, my research context in the 90s, I assumed that really serious athletes would not have challenges sustaining hmm. a behavior like physical activity because they'd been doing it and committed to it as we talked, devoted to it. But in fact, what research suggests in my experience is that when a very serious athlete leaves the context, uh -huh. the performance context, or, you know, the structure of the mandated practices, you know, all these things, then their structure around their physical activity and their exercise falls apart. And they haven't been taught how to make that happen within a non-athletic context. I, and, Michelle, I read that and I just laughed and I know it's not politically correct these days, but I'm going to say it anyways. So as a professional cyclist, that was the, that was the expectation. Oh, so-and-so, you know, big pro celebrity cyclist retired and got fat. That's just the expectation. I mean, you see them, you know, a month from now, a year from now, whatever. And they do, they, they just, they may still ride, but things just, yeah, without that podium that they're going for, they don't sustain. And you're, you're totally right. Yeah. And, you know, and it's also true for, I found it to be true for some people in the military too, because in the uh, military, yeah. similarly, there are these performance goals that have to be met. And when you leave also the other thing that is when now some people might be a hundred percent in, right? Like you're a performance athlete or you're in the military and you are a hundred percent in with the goals you have to achieve and the training you have to do. But though, when things are shoulds that easily converts, okay. So in this context, you have no choice, right? You have no choice, but to do it, but it, it might still feel like a should. And we know from research across many behaviors that that feeling of should and feeling controlled and pressured, it's like a boomerang. You know, you, you think you should, and you even intend to do it, but it makes you rebel. It makes you actually reject the very things. And so there can be a legacy, this should legacy that comes from these contexts too. So it's not just that I don't know how to do this without the structure, you know, really performance is also a North star, yeah. you know, 
So it gives you this North Star that you're aiming for. So what's the new North Star for your physical activity or eating in a certain way if it's not winning or performance or whatever? So there's a really a bunch of different yeah. things that get in the way. And again, that's one of the reasons that we're sitting here together because I got the book when you know the publicist or publisher sent it to me, How to Finally Achieve Lasting Changes in eating and exercise, because I, like you, I see that that's where we tend to fall off. And going back to the pro athlete thing, what hit me is when it's a performance-based effort, discipline, that's one thing. And then when, again, we take the podium away and now we don't have that as opposed to a self-image-based endeavor. And I was I just, I've seen this over the years with diet and exercise, especially when people endeavor to eat a certain way, exercise a certain way, to look a certain way, I don't see sustainability as opposed to when they do it for health. And so, I mean, not that I don't appreciate being fit and trim and, and whatever, but ultimately my North star is I want to be the kind of guy who's doing the kind of things so that when I am, uh, there's just headlines, eight, uh, 83 year old guy, I can't remember his name. Asian guy just did this set a record for a solo sale across the Pacific or something like that. Same thing he did when he was 23. So 60 years later, he's still doing it. I thought, I want to be doing the things today that, that helped me be that that's my self image as opposed to just doing it for that momentary payoff or that external payoff. Or as you said, I should, I want to do this because I should look this way. So there's a, there's a lot of things in what you said that I want to unpack. And, you know, we know that eating and healthy eating, intentional eating exercise um, are really in trouble for when, if for most people, not for everyone, but when they're wrapped up in trying to um, get a very sculpted body, lose weight, it, it, because those, and that's, this is what I was hinting at. We can, we're going to jump right into we this now. Um, those body focused goals, most of us, first of all, can't achieve them, um, period. So that's one problem is that in order to keep striving towards a goal, we need continuous feedback that we're achieving that goal. So that's one of the problems. The other problem with having a weight loss goal, even if it's important for health, and this is something people say, well, isn't if a weight loss goal is aiming to get healthier, isn't that doesn't that break through the challenge? And isn't that in a different category than a weight loss goal that's aiming to fit into genes from when you were in college or whatever it is? And in theory it is, but the problem is, is that that weight loss goal, and, and I am going to get to health too. You might not like what I have to say about that. Um, the weight loss goal is um, it's wrapped up in shame and failure and stigma. Yeah. And, you know, that comes from our society that comes from even clinicians unintentionally. Um, and so that mucks up our motivation for doing it. And, and those reasons related to weight loss and health are the reasons that get most people to start to exercise and eat in healthier ways. But they sat, they absolutely set them up to just 
fall apart because our motivation is contaminated by the things that we're talking about. Um, And that's one of the things that I see missing from a lot of um, approaches to helping people change their behavior, their eating and exercise behavior specifically in sustainable ways. They're not addressing these very um, nuanced and, and complex issues that are deeply embedded in people's brains around healthy eating and exercise. And that's really important to understand because the emerging theories Uh are actually coming out about healthy eating and exercise separately, but with similar, um, there's some overlap, even though eating and exercise are completely different behaviors, they are tied to these um, experiences and memories. And so the new theories are saying, hey, when it comes to a point of choice around what we eat and whether we exercise, our history and memories with the choice the last time we did it, or even our whole literally life experience, we're bringing to that point of decision. And if our approach to exercise and eating doesn't appreciate that that's going on, then we're going to be blown away like, like a cyclone hits us because of the powerful emotions and memories that are in our brain at that point of choice. I'll stop to see if you have anything well, to say. No, I, I, I love that because we're talking about, again, going back to that, what do, I'm the kind of guy, Kevin is the kind of guy who X is what I feel like drives my life, good and bad. And it's what you just said. It's that expectation I have based on what I believe to be proof of who I am. Uh, so I want to keep going forward on that, though. I do want to come back to, or, or just highlight something you said about the approach that as we look at this and habits and routines and whatnot, that you do a great job of tactically, you're not shooting down anything. You're not shooting. I mean, we have best-selling books out there right now, yes. phenomenon stuff on habits that I think you, you hold up and say, this is great. What you're, what you're holding though is the value of how we approach it. And culturally, we are not approaching it well and the stats show it. That's, that's, that is exactly true. Yeah. I mean, and the other thing that I want to say is this fit issue, which is how we started, you know, there are very popular books about different ways to change behavior, but there's a fit issue. So a single guy who doesn't have a family, you know, maybe that person is able to develop an automatic habit because there's not going to be a kid running in right when, you know, who wakes up early and interferes with your morning routine to go exercise, you know? So we do have to understand that there's a fit issue. And that's another thing that I believe is kind of missing from the conversation is which types of strategies are going to work best for whom, Um, you know, what I'm talking about and all of my work is about the people who, the strategies that don't um, accommodate these new insights about how our past negative experiences and memories and the cultural stigma around being overweight. You know, my work is about that. My work is about juggling lots of roles and responsibilities. Your listeners, the single guys, they probably don't need this. It's the people who have more complex lives and who wind up having a lot of unanticipated needs. Those are the people who need my approach and that's who it was designed for. Yes. And I'm concerned that even amongst the single guy or gal or whatever, that more and more 
their life has become more complex because of the increased interruptions that we all allow in, which I got to admit, as I was reading through this and thinking back to that time thing, we seem more harried, more busy, more anxious, more, yes. more everything. And I feel like myself is the temptation and I see it in others because we fill every second with something and then we don't accumulate those seconds to have the minutes that we need for that exercise, for that meal prep, whatnot, because at any given, and I, you know, I got to be honest with my kids, even, you know, we're watching a movie or something and having a family experience, watching something cool. And then somebody says, man, can you pause it? I got to go. I got to go pee. And they do. And it's a mere second before that device comes out to check a text, check a snap, check a whatever. And there's no, and, and I think we're all doing that at every moment between the email, between the work phone call, between the kid thing, whatever. And then we're filling it with this stuff. And so even the single people I'm, I'm finding, even the people with, I've got, I've got nine kids. And so everybody says, oh, you must not have any time. I know people with no kids who have no more time than I do. Right. We're all filling that time. You're right. I I read a book a few years ago called The End of Absence. Yes. And, That's a great, and, I've not heard that. That's brilliant. Yeah. And he, he said, and I, you know, I, hmm. I don't, I assume you and I are kind of in the same, the gen, the same general age range. And he was talking about the fact that we're the only generation that's really act, that is like expert and in the technology, but also remembers when there was no technology, yeah. you know, and that, <clears throat> Yeah, I do it too. I don't want to do it. And sometimes, you know, um, when I'm waiting, you know, sometimes there is, there could be a pragmatic, wow, I didn't have time to stay up on email today. You know, again, acute period. I need to see if there's any urgent emails. You know, I've been doing four hours of interviews, whatever, sure. and I'm waiting in line. But if we always do that, and you know, this is, this is the addiction part of technology, right? That we, we, almost can't stop ourselves at a period when, what if we just sat and I do talk to myself. I was at like a summer festival and I was waiting for my son and husband to do something. And I found myself reaching for my phone and I, and I literally had to do some self-talk. And I said, yeah. Michelle, you know, this, this is the end of absence issue, you know, put your phone away and just be, you know, and, and just be in this festival um, with people walking around outside green, it was a hot day. So, I mean, we're, this is, you know, we're going into a very kind of different direction in terms of the choices. Cause we're not, cause my book isn't really about addiction, but it is, which really this is, I mean, this is a, a this is a, a habitual practice that people really, you know, that almost all of us have trouble not doing, but it's a different type of behavior and choice than healthy eating and exercise, right? Because picking up your phone is like, you know, it's like this, it, there's not like um, going somewhere or changing our clothes or having to plan and, you know, get a menu and then, you know, you know uh, prep and cook. And, you know, there's so many steps involved with um, physical activity and exercise. And, and, you know, by the way, you know, the newer thinking there's, there's really more sophisticated thinking going on about habit formation and whether, you know, we've been taught that there's basically a, a loop that, uh, cue behavior reward right. that, 
um, is what creates these automatic habits that in theory, you know, are great, but in practice really don't reflect the way a lot of people live. But not only that, the new research, the, the, there is current wonderful debate going on in the habit literature about whether, you know, habit loops even can, you know, they're in a different stratosphere than a behavior like exercise because the habit loops assume a behavior, one choice, but exercise has multiple choice. And so what they're talking about is they're talking about initiation phases, execution phases. And so a lot of the popular approaches that we've been taught are not, are not based on what the emerging thinking is about the complex needs that habit formation might have when it comes to a behavior like exercise. When you say that, Michelle, cue behavior reward. So I, I get it. That's the habit formation goals, routines that I was schooled in. And yet when I look at my own life, as you just said, and as I read in your book, it does not line up with my most sustainable habits. I don't perceive a cue behavior reward for brushing my teeth. It's just something I do. I did it mindlessly today. I didn't think about it. I didn't need a motive. I didn't, I didn't fall off the wagon and go, you know what? I've been trying to brush my teeth and the past month, I just haven't gotten to it. I don't need that. Thank goodness. My exercise is honestly the same way. It's just what I do. It's just who I am. So the who you are is really important, but I do want to point out that the way you described your brushing your teeth actually would reflect the cue behavior reward because yes, because that's what the automatic habit is. It's so automatic that you don't need to think about the cue behavior reward there. You it's, it's a time of day that cues you. That's the cue. Okay. Without even you thinking about it, you do the behavior, brush your teeth, and you might not be aware of the reward. It doesn't, it could be, you know, again, the point of that habit loop is to completely make it automatic and it works for simple behaviors. I have a flossing habit. I don't think about it. Um, the challenge comes when we're, if we're trying to, if we're telling people that they can use that loop for exercise and healthy eating, that's where things kind of fall apart because there isn't this ability to create the automatic in, a habit unless, well, you, it sounds like you are what I call a habiter and my husband's a habiter. He has an exercise habit, but he gets up at 5, 5.30 a.m. every day. He sleeps in his exercise clothes so he doesn't have to, alarm goes off. He goes to cue alarm. I read gets that. That's, up, that's just funny. Right? Goes <laughs> and exercises in the basement and feels a sense of satisfaction. And so he's one of the lucky, you know, minority of people who can achieve exercise as a habit loop, right? But most people can't because they don't get up at five in the morning before the kids are up. Um, and it, 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 in order for the, the habit to survive, there can be no variety. Well, it makes me, okay. So going back to what I said. Yeah. So I was taking, trying to take errantly out, uh, of the Q behavior award, my brushing my teeth. And he said, no, that actually fits in there that it gets me thinking more of a, 
an inspiration motivation aspect. I don't, I don't feel the need to inspire and motivate myself to go brush my teeth. I just do it. So I, I don't feel any, I don't feel the need. I don't need to inspire and motivate myself to go exercise today. I won't need to inspire and motivate myself to intermittent fast and then only have a uh, a lunch of vegetables and, you know, to do my things. I don't, but other areas where I apparently am lacking that same perspective, uh, I have to work myself up to go deal with finances, to talk to the CPA, to deal with the budget, to talk about, I do, I do not enjoy talking about that area of life, important area of life. That one I've got to pump myself up for. I've got to buckle down, grip my teeth, willpower, those types of things, which I know other people are having towards exercise, you know, and diet. And so where, yeah, where is that? Where is that the link and inspire? Is it a motivation issue? So, um, when something becomes an automatic habit, and by the way, for physical activity, we know that um, enjoying the the feeling, the, having some type of positive feeling is an unconscious, implicit motivator that um, drives exercise, ongoing exercise. So we do want to shift. But yes, motivation is an issue. But, you know, the, the example that you're coming up with, with finances, I mean, you you may have to grit your teeth, but similar to the performance, an athlete who's in a some type of structured performance, they have to they have to participate or they're going to lose their scholarship or right. whatever. Right. Similarly, you have to deal with your finances or everything's going to fall apart. Sure. So in a way, that's a very different paradigm, because while there, you may have to grit your teeth and use your willpower, but you have no choice. It's very different to think about exercise and right, healthy eating because right, right. that is a choice. So, and, you know, we use the word inspiration, but you used a word before that I want to come back to because you said, you know, your self-concept, your self-view, that is among um, the most important uh areas of research that I view coming out into the, in the behavior change literature right now about how to create sustainable change. And it also reflects my own research that I've been doing and my coaching with people. What is, what is among the most potent motivators of sustainable change is having the behavior affirm core values, affirm your sense of self and who you are. And that's where we want to go. I think that hooks much more deeply into the self that has to make those choices day in and day out. I think about what a different paradigm that is yeah. than trying to create a cue behavior reward. Yeah, it's a strategy. And yeah, you know, it works for simple behaviors like brushing and flossing. Um, although actually there's little research to suggest that habit formation um, actually produces sustainable change. There's very little research that shows that. So despite the popularity, you know, a lot of the research has been done on uh, animals uh, and college students and people who are already going to the gym, not the rest of the world who's struggling to do it. And I think that is a really important fact yeah. that, Things when things make sound like common sense, it's very easy to go, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, if I can create a cute behavior reward, that makes sense. But 
there's actually very little research to show that it actually produces lasting change. And that's important information for people to have. It's huge. And you've got me thinking back to the age old Stephen Covey's quadrants of important and urgent that you're right. When I look at my finances, when I look at relationships, when I look at uh, some of the key areas of my life, they are more urgent. Yeah. If, even as, as much as I pay people to take care of the finances, at some point, they still have to ask me a few questions, the CPA, the bookkeeper, the, you know, my wife, whatever. And, um, and it gets acute over here on what you said, yeah, eating and exercise that that's in the, that's in the important, but not urgent category always. And that's there's, right. there's no pressure. There's no immediate consequence. It's a very long term consequence. And thus, again, why you're giving it focus and why I wanted to talk about this, because it resonates with me that, yeah, that it feels so different. And I realize even the, even as I talk about my own successes in eating and exercise, I'm so aware of what an anomaly it is, what a privilege it is. And I'm so grateful. And what you just said a minute ago, I realized at some point that what I am doing, and, and I took solace in what I am doing for my health and wellness, it, it's an exaggerated, it's not a fair statement because, uh, you know, without other people around, I don't. I wouldn't have a will to live, but those are things that I do for me that I would do regardless of anyone else. If I was not in a romantic, if I was not married, if I was never going to yes. be in a romantic relationship, if I didn't have kids that, uh, I'm a, an example to, if I didn't, it's still just who I want to see in that's, the mirror. That's okay. right. One of the things that people, especially people who are regularly active and take care of themselves in the way that you're talking about, I'm going to give you an example because I think this is really important. So there is this, this is who I am. And that is among the most important motivators. And the research is, you know, my work also is how to help people have that, feel that way about these behaviors because that's, you know, among the most important motivators. Um, but there's this other part of motivation. I want to, I want to juxtapose something. So if you went over, you know, the 30 years of doing this, I often ask people like, why do you regular exercise? For example, why are you a regular exercise? And it's very common, more common than not for people to say, Oh, because I want to be healthy because I want to take care of myself and, and make sure that, you know, I don't have a disease, blah, 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 but better health, be healthy is a core motivator, motivator or why that people say. But if you take it a step further and you say, is that why you decide day in and day out to, you know, get up at 5 a.m. or to, you know, go to the gym and they'll say, oh, no, it's because I'll feel like crap if I don't. So right. there's this disconnect between what people have been socialized. This is why we have got to contextualize healthy lifestyles within the cultural context. Right. We've been socialized to think about really brainwashed to think I'm doing this for my health. I'm doing this for my health, but that's the overarching reason. But when we take it to a decision-making level, when we go underneath, what's, what does really health mean to you? What is it? People don't realize that they're actually exercising, for example, because it helps them feel better. And they notice a difference when they exercise and how they feel and when they don't, but it's unconscious. So people aren't even aware of it. Um, and I've experienced this in interviewing people on the street. I've experienced this when I was dating my husband and I asked him about it. And there is research 
that suggests that people may say I'm doing it to for better health, but it's actually the unconscious positive um, intrinsic motivation that's driving it. And that's important to understand. And when we when we take a step out of that question, which is like an in individual based comment, and then we go to the research on physical activity, we know that it's the intrinsic, it's the positive experiences during physical activity that tend to predict physical activity over time. That's I, I, it's so interesting you're saying that. In uh, 1995, um, I was a pro cyclist. We had a child, uh, I had a kiddo with some medical problems, and it took me out. And for two years, not only was I did I not compete, I w- it was the only two years of my life I was pretty much sedentary. I, it was my only two years of having a real job as, as an actual employee. It was my only time being sedentary. And ultimately, my wife conspired with the local bike shop got me a bike and my wife didn't give it to me and say, just go ride. She said, well, you just go train, train to commute. You're just a better man when you're doing that. Mm-hmm. And I realized then, and it's continued to evolve of how it may, it's something that I feel, I just feel proud about myself. It's my, it's my own. And I know some people don't like the word proud, but self-approval. I feel good about who I am. And I see that with my friends who have the boat, but go to back to the finances, which has always been a struggle uh, for me financially. My friends who do that and they, they feel a sense of pride are the ones who are the most financially stable and they're at peace. And I, because of my own brokenness and baggage, it doesn't matter if there's a thousand dollars in the checking account or a hundred thousand dollars. I still have the same baggage. I, I haven't extrapolated this thing with health and wellness to there, but you have me thinking back again to, I do it because it makes me feel, I just feel proud of myself. I feel. Yes. Oh. That's an intrinsic motivator. Okay. That, and when you don't do it, you know, that is the pain of not experiencing that positive thing is one of the top motivators too. Now, this is where a lot of people who are not active would say, well, I don't get pleasure or positive feelings from exercise. And the reason why so many people, I would say at this point in history, I would say most people don't get the positive experience with exercise is because once again, here we are, socialization. We've been socialized that we should be exercising hard because um, that's how we're going to get the most benefits. That's how we're going to lose weight. That's what research has shown is, is the best, the right way to do it. And most people research shows, and you know, I know I, I say, I say that a little too much. No, most I, I want people, you to, I want, I want you to, that's well, people, when they exercise in intense ways, their displeasure increases. And that is a recipe for not liking exercise, which is a recipe for not doing it. So the new, the new recommendations, both in the United States and with the WHO, you know, align with the idea that everything counts when it comes to movement. And we need to just, we just need to do more. And it doesn't matter. You don't have to go to the gym. You don't have to train like you do. You don't have to work up a sweat. If you're not going to do physical activity because you don't like doing it that way, then you need to find the way that's going to resonate with you. And the research suggests 
you know, and, and, and common sense also would suggest if you if it feels good, that is the driver that so many people are missing. OK, well, I got to hit on that because a lot of my listeners are going to know that terminology because one of my frequent co-hosts, uh, dearest friends, and we share these offices together, Dr. Randy James. So he's a medical doctor. He's a functional medicine expert. And his we laugh about it. His answer to, hey, Dr. James, what's so what's the best exercise for me? He says, whichever one you'll do. Just, right. whichever, just go find the one, like you said, find something that you have any pleasure in and do it to any degree. If you'll do that, you've just changed the world. And if some people say, but I don't notice how I feel or I don't feel pleasure, then the goal is to feel proud of yourself and go, I, at least I'm taking care of myself. So then we have to find um, an alternative to the, to the kind of feel good feelings and feel good about the fact that we're taking better care of ourselves. We have to find something okay. to feel good if the person um, just can't generate the positive feelings because either they're overweight and, you know, it, it takes sometimes it's, it hurts, you know, to move when your body is carrying extra weight. And so we want to do things in a way that's going to work for our bodies. <laughs> I, I, I've seen people recently playing pickleball. A lot of, uh, this is going to sound bad. I hope that, you know, nothing against the young fit, whatever people who are playing it, but I see a lot of older people doing it. Some who don't look in the best shape. And what strikes me, Michelle, is if I, I stopped recently on a run and was watching some folks doing it, I think they spent more time laughing than actually playing. And I, that is killer. That's worth its weight in gold. They're out there, they're moving and having fun. And thank God. That is, I mean, that is what we're talking about. Yeah. Let's, we need to, not everyone needs to convert it into play. I also know that Brene Brown is a huge pickleball fan and hmm. she, I think has a league or a, you know, or not a league, but a, a team. And that's what we need. I think our society, I um, am on a board for a global health, the um, URSA or the um, health and well-being group that represents the gyms around the world. And they are in a sea change. See, what we need, it gets back to socialization. What we need to do is we need to have the organizations that are marketing to us, the people that are training us, um, the clinicians that are treating us. We need this level of new messaging and new meanings um, to help people in their own minds understand how to reframe why we would be physically active, yes. right? It's it's not just about prescribing minutes because it's gonna be good for your health. It's how is this gonna help you feel and be your best every day? And that's the new conversation that thankfully is starting to happen within the fitness industry, which is a really important player in how people um, feel, approach, and whether uh, exercise, and ultimately whether they're going to succeed with sustaining it over time. Okay. Well, with as much uh, respect and tact as I can say, I mean, yeah, you talking about the cultural pressure towards exercise. I mean, right here in podcasting, I have uh, peers and, and peers with lo much larger shows that are you know, Navy SEALs and special forces. And we like to listen to that. I think a lot of people want to kind of align I, with that, but yeah. I am not personally training to kill somebody with my bare hands or hike Mount Kilimanjaro every day for a month or do these massive physical feats that like you said, I'm afraid people 
get to looking at exercises. Oh my gosh, it's this huge investment. It's a lot of pain. It's a lot of effort. And a big portion of your book is the key to success with specifically eating and exercise is not falling into this all or nothing approach. That's right. So because of the, all of the different ways we've learned to think about healthy eating or intentional eating and exercise, it has taught us that there's a right way to do it. And the right way often models who the top performers are or the Navy SEALs or the personal trainer who went into the field because they adore fitness. Well, of course, you know, they're going to be exercising in ways and a lot, but they, in a way that is what has created the standards yeah. that we think we're all supposed to be striving the, for. But the stigma, you said, I like that word around. Yeah. It. And, and, and so when we don't do it, we feel, you know, we feel well, and also depending on how we look, we, we're stigmatized. And here's the deal. It's created all or nothing thinking in our brains. And again, it all, it all you know, we, we have, we know so much more about the brain and we know that all or nothing thinking isn't just getting in our way and kind of an unintentionally unhelpful strategy it's a cognitive distortion. Like wow. the irony is that we've learned to believe all or nothing thinking through society and through so many different means, but it's a cognitive distortion. So we have to figure out how to break out of that, bust out of that distortion that is embedded in our mindset. And that, you know, that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book, because um, we know that when things go awry. So this is, this is something I'm learning that I haven't been saying enough. I am not saying that we don't need plans. Plans are very important. Whether we have a completely unstructured life, whether we're talking about a retired person who has, you know, whether they're an empty nester or living all by themselves, but they don't maybe have a lot of structured time, whether you're in that category or whether you're in your category with nine kids, you know, all lots of things going on, unexpected forces and needs that arise. Planning is important because typically we don't do things if we, if we don't put them in our schedule, in our daily priorities. So planning is important. But here's what happens um, with behavior change strategies. People start and they create plans. They have goals, but things fall apart. Your plan doesn't work out people tend to bring all or nothing thinking to that moment. And of course they do nothing. They feel like a failure. And maybe that happens one or two or three or four times, then they're done until the next time they start again. And the same thing happens. So what happens is people are stuck in this cycle of starting and stopping, but they're not sustaining because at this stopping point, when things go awry, we haven't been trained. We haven't learned what beliefs we need to bring to that moment and what strategies are actually going to help us effectively navigate in a tactical way so that we stay the path, even if we're not doing our exact plan or the thing that we had really hoped to do. You get me to thinking, yeah, if my plan today is I'm going to do this exercise at this place for this long at this intensity I have a very structured, inflexible opportunity. And if something changes in my day, that's not going to happen. As opposed to, I want to end this day having 
had some movement happen throughout the day. And if that means, and this literally happened to me the other day, uh, instead of a, of a, uh, run or ride or whatever I was going to do, it was a phone call that needed to happen. It was an important phone call and it happened while I did laps walking around my office, totally mindlessly, but I'm sitting there doing laps to help me focus on the call. Cause I can focus on a phone call auditory better when I'm pacing anyways. And I did that. And you know, at the end of the day, I don't remember the, the total, but I've, I've got my, my, my little watch here. And it said I'd done X amount of steps. I had done a lot of movement that day. So you, that's what I call the joy choice, yes. the perfect and perfect option. You should write a book with that name. I, that lets you do something instead of nothing. So here, but I want to clarify something okay. depending on who you are. This is where fit and self-awareness is absolutely key to creating sustainable change. Depending on who you are, having that very specific intensity time gym plan might very well be perfect for you as opposed to, I want to get some movement every day. But even if that is your plan, see, you did it intuitively because I have a, well, I don't know. I, you'll have to tell me, but even when you have that specific plan, that what the joy choice is about is helping people develop the belief system that says, you know what, I'm not going to be able to do that gold standard, holy grail plan. And if I can on any given day, well, there's the joy choice, the perfect, the perfect option, the trade-offs that I make. So your trade-off was you walk, I mean, for you, it's not officially a trade-off because you're like, instead of sitting, you walked and that's something, you know, that benefits you. But for other people, it might be, well, my friend wants me to help him do this and I want to help, but I also still have to fit some movement or I just, I won't feel good, you know, later in the day. So you say to your friend, you know what, I can help you for 30, but you know, move or something, but not the full two hours that you need. And then you do half of what you thought you're going to do. So this is trade-off it's, and you know what, we do it in every other area of our life. We slice and dice all the time. A friend can't meet us at the time. They said for a drink or for a coffee, we don't dump them because they can't do it. We don't feel like failures. They don't feel like failures. We compromise and figure out another time to meet, right? The dentist calls and says, I can't, I have to move your appointment to another time. You don't fire your dentist. We slice and dice every other aspect of our life without feeling like failures. But when it comes to exercise and our eating plans, the first thing we think when we can't do our plan is we failed. Isn't, isn't that ridiculous? Well, it's, it's a recipe for failure. And yeah, you've got me thinking about my own habits here. And I, you know, I do have days that I plan. I do have, you know, Tuesdays, I have an appointment, uh, in in another part of town and I take that to do a ride or a run on a favored trail or whatever. And I do a big one. So yesterday I did a, a big, a big effort and today, if things go awry and it doesn't happen, my joy choice may be to just let it slide, man. I did a ton That's that day right. and tomorrow I'm going to do more. And you said earlier, Michelle, you talked about, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase now, but it was in essence, I wrote down, oh, you said acute times. Like right now you're in acute time with this book launch. And so some yeah. things are, and that too, looking at cycles and seasons of things, and I'll have some weeks where I mean, my mileage and my elevation gain, I mean, it's just rock star status. And then another week where I had one recently and I ran once, that was it. 
But again, I'm looking at the accumulative deposits. I like to go back to finances. Uh, over time, is my deposit? So I look back and, and I do appreciate the little wearable devices. And I can yeah. look and go, man, I did it. Even though that week I did it once, the next week I did five or six exercises. And the, you know, the other week I did a lot of stuff. And overall, it adds up to the, like you said, to I feel good. I'm sleeping and, well. And it's your part of your sense of self. You know, people... If it's, if you're doing it because it's a should, it's very hard to, or the way you're doing it or why you're doing it feels like a should, that really can't become a part of your sense of self for most people. And so when things go awry, like for someone, for most people, when something goes awry and they can't do something for a couple months, they tend to feel like failures and they, you know, tend to feel like I'm just not, you know, until the next time. But when you're people who understand, and this is the challenge, and this is, this is really what my part of the biggest part of what my work is about is helping people learn how to internalize the value, how to do these behaviors in ways that do affirm who they are instead of reject who they are. Because you know, like you said, you may have a couple of weeks where you don't do very much, but because it's who you are, as soon as that acute period wears off, you're back because you care about it. And that's, that is ultimately what we want to help people learn how to do. But it's hard for people to do that when it's been shoved down their throat in a way that actually rejects who they are and makes them feel that they're not good enough. So that's why we're shifting the meaning and the motivation for, again, for the majority who it the other, other meanings and motivation doesn't work for, to more of a well-being, self-care meaning and approach, because that is a much easier North star, if you will, to internalize and have it become a part of who we are. You said that so many times just in this, this thing, who I am. And it makes me think back to, again, the goals that I grew up doing, the goals, the habits, routines of the things, these are the things I'm going to do did not stick. It was the ones that I embraced and said, this is who I am. That's right. And that stuff. But there's a barrier to a lot of people feeling that way. Well, Michelle, I did go to your website, michelleseeger.com slash joy dash quiz. And I took the joy quiz because I was so curious. And so I'll, I'll tell you, so folks go there and uh, it'll help you understand your traps, which you can explain in just a second. But I scored low on rebellion, uh-huh. which is funny because my family would laugh. They think I'm such a rebel, but at least here I'm not, thank goodness. So rebellion's not one of my traps. I scored moderate on accommodation and I scored low on perfection. So tell me how that pans out. Sure. Well, I'm not surprised based on what I've learned about you during this time. You you have no need for rebellion if this is part of who you are. There's absolutely no need to rebel. Rebellion is when we think we should do it. Someone told us to do it. So, or we've partially internalized like, yeah, I kind of know I should. And I, eh, that's when we rebel. Which I say, I say, I want, do you want to, or do you want to want to? And I think a lot of times we, we want to want to, but we don't really. That's exactly right. So I'm not surprised at all. And already, um, the perfection, the low score on perfection um, is also you've modeled that you couldn't do what you plan to do. So you walked around your office. I mean, there are some people who would have had a plan to go to the gym and, you know, or do a very high intensity training 
and just bring all or nothing perfection to that situation and then do nothing because they can't do the ideal. But you intuitively, I mean, I th- and again, I think this is something that you have fully internalized as to who you are. Look, you couldn't do it because of that really important phone call. And, and that is how life works. So you walked around and you got movement in a different way. That is the, the antithesis of perfection. That is that is the perfect imperfect. That's the joy choice. So I'm not surprised by that. Um, your accommodation moderate. You know, I don't know how old your kids are, but that has to do with whether or not you subsume your own, you know, um, eating and exercise self-care needs um, below other people's needs all the time consistently. Now, the, all the time. Now, it's important to you know, other people that we care about have needs and we do need to meet them. But if we do it exclusively to the detriment of our own, then we're really setting ourselves for burnout and, you know, really bad outcomes. Now, with the size of your family, you know, you are going to have a fair amount of accommodation that you need to do. But the, I mean, think about if you always accommodated and you never or your work and you never got your physical activity in. How would that feel? So, the moderate does make sense. Does it make sense to you now that I've explained it, it, that? It does because it's something that I grapple with. Like today, you know, if I'm not today, but on a given day, if I'm home with the kids and I'm thinking I want to get out and do some movement, I could take them with me. We could do a family hike. We could do a family bike. Or do I need time alone? Do I need to go out and really hit it hard and clear my head? And that's a constant that's, that is hard to accommodate because generally in that moment, I kind of want to take off on my own, but I need to, you know, balance. Is it more important to chill out and get a little movement, moderate it and uh, serve the kids. And that's a yeah, daily grappling. It, you know what? It's a daily grapple for me too. And that's, that is, it's a, these types of things that people grapple with that's what most people grapple with, but we haven't been taught to have a belief system that can guide us to how to grapple with it in a way that we can still do something instead of nothing and meet the needs of other people and stay on the path of lasting change. You've got to be able to do both, but we haven't been taught to think about exercise and healthy eating in this way. Well, that's why you're here. You're teaching us, Michelle. And, And seriously, thank you. I'm so... I was so excited to get the book to see, again, I love the tagline, how to finally achieve lasting changes in eating and exercise because it's not the same. And we are so failing. There's so much guilt out there, so much failure. We see the stats on health and wellness right now. And I am so excited to bring this message to people because I think it'll be a new lease on life for a lot, a lot of folks. So thank you for your research and thanks for bringing it to us today. Thank you. All right, friends, I encourage you to check out Dr. Michelle Seeger's new book, The Joy Choice, How to Finally Achieve Lasting Changes in Eating and Exercise. Coming up, her next episode, I'll be walking with Michelle through her values and motives and habits, as I do with every guest. But in this case, we'll, of course, be covering her unhabits, which I think will be very freeing for a lot of you to hear. It has been for me as well. Uh, thanks for choosing to tune in to the Self-Helpful Podcast. If you got value from this episode, I'd ask you to leave a review and mention Michelle. It'll bless her and uh, help other people know what to expect from the show. And best thing you can do, take something you learned, share it with somebody else. It'll help you to better ingest it and it'll help that person as well. And I sincerely hope that I today have helped you help yourself. 